I think that the interesting question is, do we regard food culture as something static or do we regard it as something ever evolving? You're listening to Food by Design, an IDEO podcast, where we talk to the people who are building the food systems we'll need in the future, right now. We go where the questions are, looking at the gaps in the current systems, and share what we learn all to find out what's next. We're here to start the conversations that can help make better food systems for every one of us. I'm your host, Sandeep Bahuja. This is a bonus episode of the podcast, and we're doing something different. We're sharing a live conversation we hosted in mid-December with Magnus Nilsson and Milena Martinez. Magnus was the head chef of Favikin in Sweden, one of the world's most interesting and acclaimed restaurants. He intentionally closed it last year, and his new book, Favikin, 4,015 Days Beginning to End, catalogs its journey. He's currently the director of the MAD Academy, which is a school that aims to make the world better through educating people working in hospitality and food. Malena is the research director of Peru's Mater Iniciativa. It's an interdisciplinary R&D lab for food, and it's behind the equally acclaimed restaurant Central in Lima and a few others. It started out as an effort to learn more about Peruvian biodiversity, but as you'll hear, became so much more. Between the three of us, we have multiple Michelin stars and rankings on the world's best restaurant list. Our conversation hits on a number of topics. Supporting equitable and diverse food systems through restaurants, what it means to preserve and evolve traditional foodways, the importance of craft, the challenges of designing for delight in today's hyper-connected world, and more. One last note before we start. Magnus was home alone with his two-year-old during this conversation, so you'll hear him in the background a few times. If you've been on Zoom at all this year, and you haven't had a child enter the chat, consider this a little bit of reality and cuteness from us to you. Let's talk about creating equitable and diverse food systems through restaurants. I think what's really interesting about both of you and the restaurants that you have or had is that a lot of the invisible issues that arise in the food system can be made visible uh, through eating at places like yours, where you can storytell and talk a little bit about the choices you've made and the decisions and things you've done to present a guest with a different experience on the plate that may illuminate these issues that we see in the food system. Melina, can you start off and tell us a little bit about the role that Mater plays in, in local food systems down in Peru and how that shows up in the various restaurants that you all have? What Mater does is exploring the territory of Peru and in exploring it, we kind of create a network of people that does something in the food system. And so what we have is platforms of visualization, of showcasing diversity, which are the restaurants. And so first we have Central and we talk about ecosystems of Peru. It's the way we created to convey a message of the richness and abundance of Peru and the many microclimates that you can find around the territory, but also the amount of stories that are behind food and behind every product that we showcase in the tasting menu. And then we have Mil, which is in the Andes of Peru, in Cusco. And so what we do there is talking about the high altitude ecosystems. 
And then we have Koye, which is the restaurant of Pia. So here in Koye, what we do is we offer the many uh, limitless, uh, apparently limitless abundance of ingredients that you can find from different regions of Peru. So uh, we know that gastronomy is a, is a great vehicle to talk about things that are there, but we don't have the time maybe, or people don't have the time to invest in knowing more. So you're eating food, but you're nurturing yourself from a lot of other things. You are getting so much information by coming here and by trying this tasting menu or, or this uh, proposal that is not just about food. People may not know that Peru is one of the most biodiverse places in the world, one of the most diverse places in the world. Can you talk a little bit about how you and your team engage and support the local farmers that you work with, knowing that there are many languages spoken in Peru and all the other things that you all do? Yes, Peru is actually one of the mega diverse uh, countries. And, and so we have a lot of agrobiodiversity because we are, our culture was very much about agriculture. Agriculture was the main activity for Incas and previous civilizations. And then because we have so many cultures and so many ethnic groups, it adds up to the amount of food that there's around, uh, the amount of crops that have been domesticated in these lands. And because, as I said, there are lots of microclimates, then there's the geography factor. So we have the Andes, we have two um, different temperature uh, oceans in the coast, we have the coast, the desert, and the Amazon, which is 60% or a little bit more of the territory. And so we have a lot going on. And in our network is about connecting with local people so that we have these persons that are there and our connection is a relationship that we keep nurturing as well because we want to keep them close so that we can know more about what's going on in their places in their regions we are talking an hour flight from here uh, to go to Cusco de Andes or maybe an hour and a half flight to go to the Amazon of Madre de Dios or the north in Jaén or San Martín so the good thing is that we have locals that can translate everything that is going on in their places to us so that we can keep on uh, moving forward together. And yes, sometimes the language is a, is a big deal because in the Andes, it's uh, Quechua, is, is Quechua and Aymara are the languages that are mostly sp spoken. The good thing is that people really and honestly want to connect. And so we used to be this disintegrated country where Lima, the capital, was everything. And right now, everybody's trying to find out ways to truly make relationships and connect. Love to see it. Magnus, you all have played such an important role in your local food system. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you went on the journey and the evolution of the way that you've engaged with your local suppliers and the folks that you worked with at Favikin. Yeah. A, a restaurant like Favikin used to be, or actually most restaurants really, or perhaps even all, I mean, the best you can hope for being, I think, is a reflection of where you are, you know, your place in the world, um, and the reflection of the, the creative entity that's the team behind a restaurant like that. And for me, quite early on, because of the place itself where it was located, it meant that buying produce from close by meant that we got better quality. That was sort of the practical entry point into our sourcing policy. This is like nothing new, of course. People before me have discovered this as well. But by imposing some restrictions on yourself, you, uh, you can force creativity to kind of take new expressions. Besides the uh, obvious benefits of buying locally, 
generally speaking, when it comes to food, like that was to me like the big driving factor. And we very quickly realized that there was great potential in our sort of local area, in our region, a very diverse food craft culture, but like no one had any experience in delivering to restaurants because there are no restaurants like that up there. Uh, so we had to develop that and we, div- we forged very strong relationships with uh, 80, 90 different suppliers in that region, which is, I think, pretty natural when you're two small businesses working together. After having done so for many, many years, you uh, get to know each other beyond just the business relationship. A-, a lot of those places, not all of them, but a lot of those places, they developed in a way that they wouldn't have if we hadn't supported them, not only with custom, but also perhaps with some ideas and feedback and support when they needed it in the same way as Fabrican as a restaurant would never have developed at the way it did without those relationships where we were also open to receiving the same amount of support and feedback on top of the fact that we also got very good produce from these people. You both have shared stories about how that has actually led to literal investment into your local um, partners that you've worked with. I think you both have different stories about what that has meant for them. I'd love for you to share a little bit of insight at what it means to actually extend the the footprint of the restaurant, so to speak, outwards towards these people and what it means for them and their families. Well, in Mill, because we have these farm fields, uh, we, it's not that much. It's an acre and a half, uh, probably. But uh, the thing is that we decided that we wanted to do that just because we wanted to know more of the two neighboring communities that were around Mill. And we wanted to let them know that we wanted to know and we wanted to create a relationship that was going to be sustainable and not just going as interventionists and doing our thing and not leaving anything. The work in the fields is what united us. And it was the most interesting part because we had so much to learn from that. And it's very much related to the cosmovision of Andean people too, because Andean people are very close to the work in the fields, are very close to what they call the Pachamama. And there's a spiritual factor around that, which is also very important if we wanted to know more about Andes in Peru. The work in the fields has become... Uh, a milestone for us. And then from that on, because I'm talking 2018, there was a lot of learning and, and there was a process of getting to understand each other, of also getting to know more about ingredients that we normally in Lima take for granted. Because in Lima, you normally get everything all year long. It's not that we have these seasons very well marked. So normally you have everything And so that comes with the idea that everything is around all the time. And it's not like that. Uh, When we were in Cusco, we realized the harvest happens only once a year. That pretty much sets everything because they get programmed for everything that has to happen once a year. The sowing and the preparing the fields and then the rituals of preparing the Pachamama and then everything just before the harvest and caring for these crops. And so... There has been so much that we have understood. I think our views have changed because of that too, because we know more about the value of ingredients and know more about the, not only the density of nutrients, but also the density of the care and, the, and so much that gets invested in this activity. One thing that we both have heard is local foodways is not just about ingredients. It's not just about preserving or 
or keeping ingredients going for a long time and instead replacing them with other things, but it's also about potentially preservation of technique. And I know you both have had very different journeys about thinking about local technique and what that has meant. So Magnus, I'd love for you to start and tell us a little bit about your point of view on local technique and the preservation of technique as a part of a food way and how you've evolved on that. And then Milena, we'll come to you because I know you guys are doing very interesting things uh, with serving food in very traditional ways to show people that, that aspect of it. Yeah, so I used to come from um, an angle that I think a lot of people in high-end restaurants do where uh, you instinctively feel that the way to do to preserve food culture is just that word to preserve it as it is as a living food culture but then um, some years ago i started working on a research project where i wrote two books one called the nordic cookbook and one called the nordic baking book which are both big documentary pieces it's a recipe collection of 1500 recipes and a lot of narrative background about the food culture of the nordic region so none of the recipes are really mine they're the result of this huge research effort traveling around observing, photographing, getting to know people and collecting recipes and stories essentially to explain to people what Nordic food culture actually is. And what I realized during that sort of journey of discovery and documentation is that I actually no longer believe that people like myself imposing traditional food ways on others, you know, in the sense that we you know, we kind of try to create these artificial circumstances for them to be perpetuated as a living culture. I don't think it's right because it's a brand new thing. It's something that we have invented, essentially our generation or the generation before. This idea that you can preserve something that has, you know, once been relevant, but now obsolete just because you want to and because you have the resources to create an artificial environment for it. And I kind of completely shifted and realized that I believe that What's very important is to, while any expression of food culture is still being actively practiced, we have to document it. We have to make sure that the theoretical knowledge or technique doesn't get lost at first. That's like the base minimum. But then whether that continues being practiced or not, that's not really up to us. That's you know, up to all of humanity. Uh, because it's like, for example, this um, thing that's a very traditional uh, Swedish dish, which is called Sushrömming, uh, which is a fermented herring dish. So if you hear a weird, w- weird sound now or see me flitting out of the picture, it's because I have a two-year-old who's running around here. I'm very sorry about that, but it's just the two of us tonight. We have, uh, we've all have young ones on this call, so it is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, but essentially, so this sour herring thing, it's something that everyone considers super traditional. But the fact is that it's only been around for, you know, 80 or 90 years. People think that it's been there for a thousand years and some version of it might have been so. But the fact is that the very technique, which is essentially this first barrel fermented salted Baltic herring that's then re-fermented in the tin, tin can, it entirely relies on the tin can. And therefore it can't have been in existence before the industrial revolution. The fact now is that since it's dependent on the tin can and the tin can is really an industrial product, it also means that with the decline in popularity now, at some point, we will reach a critical point where uh, it will no longer be profitable to make these. I'm sure it's going to happen within the next 10 or 20 years because my generation don't eat this more than perhaps once a year as a fun tradition. We don't eat it like once, you know, every two Tuesdays like my grandparents used to do. Um, and when that point hits, like that whole technique will become obsolete. And there is nothing that I can do to keep that 
culture alive, but I can make sure that the theory of it and all of the information about it is being kept on record and preserved because it would be very wasteful if it wasn't. And that's just one example like that. Melina, how about you all? I know that you do very interesting things in Central and Mil. We definitely uh, disagree on that point, I, I can say, but of course it might have to do with the fact that I am in Peru and I am in Latin America. There's a lot of other things that are going around the preservation of tradition around here. And, and I have to say that because there's a cultural thing and there's also a history of hidden gems around here. You know, there, there's a lot of that we don't know from our own territory and from our previous cultures. And that's because we haven't valued that. We as Latin American people, we haven't thought uh, much about what we had or what we have right now. And because we have customs and traditions and rituals that are still going on and, and they have hundreds of years been going on. We believe that it's actually pretty important that we not also register everything, that, but we can keep that alive because it's worth the effort. I'm talking about hidden gems because when you actually are part of a harvest in the Andes of Peru and you see how they collect the remains of the harvest and they make an oven from it and they cook potatoes to perfection, it takes just 30 minutes to make this happen. And you gather around and you can see how this is something very important because it means something for the community. And I'm talking one custom. And, and if you go to the Amazon, they, they have this tradition of cooking fish completely in the leaves of certain trees. And, and they do so uh, with insects when there are no fish around. And that has a purpose. And everything is, has a purpose. But we have these traditions that we haven't registered so far. And we feel that if we don't uh, showcase what we have in diversity and in cultural traits, we are going to be losing a lot of, of the identity of these communities and a lot of the information that will be relevant today and tomorrow and, and the years to come. There's also a resilient part of our culture that we want to preserve. You know, Andean people have been very uh, resilient and, and Amazonian uh, communities because of the scarcity and because of the history they have gone through. They have created these varieties of crops, not for the joy of it, well, at some point, definitely, but, but also because they had to, and, and it means something as well. So, of course, we want to preserve varieties of different crops, and we don't want to be known only as a potato country. We have so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is really the same thing that I'm saying. It's just different ways of doing it. And I think that the, the larger question also uh, is if you take it into a, a, like a much bigger perspective and we look at like where does food culture come from? Like where does every single occurrence in food culture come from? Well, it comes from someone at some point who did something that made sense there and then because of certain circumstances. And I think that the interesting question as well is that do we regard food culture as something static or do we regard it as something ever evolving? What I feel after having done all of this research of all of these years, you know, is that there is only one answer to that. And it is that it's ever evolving. 
And that's how all of these amazing things that we all love, that we consider great expressions of our separate cultures, they come from a beginning when they made sense. And as long as they make sense to some people, they're going to be continually practiced. But at the point, like with the sour herring example, where they don't make sense anymore, they will die out as a living culture. And I think this is where we also have to wonder, like, what's because no no one can really decide what's worth keeping or not because we don't know what the few future is going to be like so my position is that we should record all of it we should record everything we can and make sure that at least that's there but i also think that it's very dangerous for food culture to be caught in this idea where we sometimes think that it is static and that all new development is less good than what was used to be before and this is something that i often very often come across because people will assume that I have a, you know, a, a different sort of point of view on this. But the, the, the fact is that I welcome new occurrences in food culture, and I find that they are equally important to the old ones. I, I want to see food for what it is, which is the most important cultural expression of humanity, simply because all of us eat. And I think that at the same time, as we all have to definitely make sure that we don't forget things, because that's just wasteful, right? If someone has developed or if a culture has developed traditions over hundreds or thousands of years by trial and error, it would be terribly wasteful for us to just you know, neglect that and throw it away. But at the same time, I want us to continue developing our food culture in the same way as it used to be before, that you know, we do things that make sense in our space and where we are right now. And I think that that's something sometimes that's missing from people from my part of hospitality, actually. That we fail to consider like the bigger picture of what food culture actually is. It's really interesting to hear you say that. I think where I live in Oakland, California, on unceded Ohlone land, we've seen a like burgeoning movement to bring indigenous foodways, ingredients, and traditions back to life, kind of bridging the two things that you're both talking about, I think, on the millennia timescale versus the hundred year timescale, right? And that has had a really interesting effect because I think what it does is it, it puts visibility back onto something that has been made invisible, that has been wiped away and shows kind of the importance of recognizing what was and what, and what might have been um, in a really interesting way. So I'm going to take us to the next uh, part of this, which Magnus, in your latest book, you talked a little bit about this idea that I think many of the people uh, listening to us will really relate to, which is this idea of, of crafts, people and management. And you talk about in your book how it's so critically important that we're fostering both of those things. And I think you see it in the design world, you see it in the tech world, whether it's creatives and coders and managers, whatever the case may be. I think it's a very uh, common thing that people can reference back in their own life. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about this idea of craftsmanship, what it's meant to you and how you guys have set it up, uh, how you all, excuse me, have set it up at Favikin to run it with, with kind of both of those things in mind. First of all, I want to say that we kind of failed on that. And uh, this is like, it's an incomplete solution, what I'm going to talk about a little bit. But I think that most people will recognize the problem as such. And I can illustrate it by explaining what a career path of someone that would come to work at Fabrican would look like. The person would uh, generally go to some kind of cooking school. Maybe they're 18, 19 years old. In their early, early 20s, they would start working in a restaurant that's usually created by a contact through the cooking school or some other way. Or 
by taking an internship and then getting sort of foot in. And this is very exaggerated in hospitality. You have a very exaggerated pace of sort of accelerated pace of uh, promotion. So a person like that can very quickly get their first job as a chef de partie, which is a cook or a, a front of house person, a waiter. And almost before anyone understands anything, let's say two years later, if this is a, like a really good person, a solid person, someone that, that feels a bit dependable and good, it's not surprising if they move on from a, from a restaurant like Favik and if they were really early and uh, they take on a job in a second restaurant. And from there, the step to becoming a sous chef, which is an entirely different thing, is very short. The way things usually work in restaurants is that a sous chef, which is sort of a, the middle management of the kitchen, quits. So what does the restaurateur do? Well, they're unlikely to be able to find a very qualified sous chef from outside, unless they're a restaurant maybe like Favik, and that sort of has a lot of people who wants to come there and work, or like Central. But most likely, they're going to recruit from their own ranks. So they're going to pull someone out who is more junior than a previous sous chef. That person is most likely going to be in the middle of their trajectory as craftspeople. So let's say that they have maybe six years. But if, if you're not a sous chef after six years working in very ambitious restaurants, I think that most people will feel a lot of stress about that, which is really sad. The big problem with this is actually twofold, is that by doing this, this restaurateur will pull this person, this craftsperson, out of their potential development curve as a craftsperson, becoming much better at cooking or serving. <coughs> Come. <laughs> Um, and also put this person in a position where they will, uh, they will just um, be entering an entirely new craft, which is management. It's not at all the same, you know? It's an entirely own craft. Magnus, if you were going to do it over again, how would you think about that career path and, and managing the two things? I mean, when I, uh, if I advise people to do this, I, I, do, I advise them to not do it the way I did. But on the other, way, on the other hand, it's hard to say for me because the way I did it worked out just fine for me worked very well in even but i think that like the the sad thing is the way the system is set up is that you pull people that are not yet masters of their craft out of that craft and you put them into management which is an entirely different craft without any prior preparation and this is what leads to a lot of problems in hospitality and i know that it does in, in other industries as well because it leads to i mean it's not easy to manage other people and it's something you have to learn and there are ways of learning that. But without that knowledge, most people fail. The way it is in restaurants is that I think that that's like one of the number one reasons why people leave the hospitality industry. So it's a giant drain on skilled humans that should stay and see their career paths for a much longer period of time in hospitality than they do today. I think it's the most important reason why you rarely find people that are young or older than you know, their early or mid-30s working actively in restaurants. I mean, if you haven't by that time either become very senior management so that you can control your own scheduling and things like that a little bit, or come to a point where you run your own place, the likelihood of you working as a chef or a cook, for example, is very small. I mean, you don't meet many of those. And you see it in the pile of CVs that comes into a restaurant as well. It's like, I think that the restaurants would just be a lot better if people stayed cooking or serving, working actively for a little bit longer and uh, were given the opportunity to do so in a more balanced way, seeing that as a viable career path. And then when they were really, truly masters of their craft, if they wanted to, they could go on into management. Milena, you are a doctor by training. 
and you run an extremely interdisciplinary group. Yeah, I mean, and we have different disciplines in matter, and, and we did that on purpose because we wanted a wider view on everything that we were going to investigate on. And we wanted to have more, more input from different backgrounds and different fields of work. And we think uh, we did good because there was a lot of people doing their thing in their own place and not being able to talk to more people or to reach a bigger audience. They wanted to do so, so badly, and, and they just couldn't find the right channel to do that. And so there were a lot of uh, scientists out there who knew so much about Peruvian diversity or, or one particular thing, a specialist in something. It is through food that they could create uh, more interest in, in the kind of work they had been doing all the time. We uh, created a catalog uh, just a year ago. We had it published. It was exactly that. It's about 30 species of Peru, about 30 ingredients that we have used. And so these 30 ingredients were, we had an illustrator coming in, so she made beautiful drawings of them. There was a biologist coming in that would allow us to have the technical information uh, from every ingredient. And then we would give our, the, the story of how we found this ingredient, where we found it. That kind of work is, is the product that we can offer besides food to be shared by a lot of people so that they could actually understand more about uh, not only diversity, but the story behind everything and, and, and how relevant it is. And, and not because we, we say so, but also because there are other people that can do that uh, from their own uh, lines of work. I can say that we have encountered a lot of, of precious people that have a lot to say, but going into the crafting, uh, I think there's also in Peru what is going on is that because of this gastronomy boom, there was a lot of people who uh, wanted to become a chef. There was a lot of people trying to manage a restaurant, and it's not an easy thing. And not just because they were a good cook, it meant it was going to be a good business person. It has become kind of a problem, if we can say so. Uh, we have a lot of people, a lot of cooking schools a lot of young people uh, thinking very romantically about the craft. It's a topic we could spend another hour talking about to see ways that different industries and different folks have figured it out. There's a lot of different ways that people have tried to kind of keep a foot in both worlds and, and use that development of craft as actually a, a teaching tool for younger folks and up and coming. And that becomes a mechanism for managing people in, in many environments, one that's worked well for us here um, at IDEO. One thing that I find to be super interesting, and I don't know if it's going to just turn into a, all three of us are getting old conversation, but thinking about how to design for delight in today's super hyper-connected world, you know, I can fire up Chef's Table and see both of you on different episodes. I can open up Instagram and see the menus that you are offering this week, last week, et cetera. I would love to know how you both have thought about designing for delight in today's super hyper-connected world and how you've made that experience really sing for people when they come to very celebrated places like yours? Either one of you can start. Well, I can start by saying, because of probably the episode of Chef's Table, there's people coming to the restaurant and they already have an expectation of what they're going to be having. But there's always this surprise element because they're going to find these ingredients they have never tasted before. And, and they're going to find these stories and this amount of information that it's something new. It's supposed to be something new. So 
we can say that what we create are uh, experiences that are based on the new and, are, and that are based on, on the amount of things that we have and the abundance of ingredients and information and stories. But then again, I can say also that our experiences are based on many other elements that are right there with the food. These other components like the pottery, ceramics, the elements of, of wood from different places and the, and the stories that are accompanying everything and then the feelings and sensations and textures. So when we say that let's create something really interesting in, in Mil, it's about the altitude and, and then what you have is it's the ruins of Morai, which used to be this agricultural research center of the Incas you don't compete with that. You're not supposed to. We just create the, the space to talk about that. And through food, we can say there's this culture to really look into and, and find out more because it's so interesting and relevant and it has so much importance right now at this moment. I'm not saying just post-COVID. I'm saying just because we should be talking about connecting to nature. We should be talking about connecting with people and hearing the stories of other cultures that have done so, that have uh, survived these uh, harsh conditions and, and everything that they, they historically have. Uh, I think the authenticity is still the kind of factor that is going to be surprising because there's this richness that you have to talk about. I completely agree with that. And I actually like, this is one of the things that I, I thought a lot about with Favik. Restaurants like Favik and to some extent have gone obsolete uh, because of the way we share information today. And I think that if you look at it as a, as a whole, it's one of the things that we as humans have really screwed up. We really destroyed that for ourselves. This possibility of being mind blown by something entirely new. With, with our current need to feel like we need to share what we experience and then in the same way as receivers of that information, wanting to have all of this info that we don't really need. And I think that with a place like Favikin, you know, people coming there, like Malina said as well, with Netflix, for example, I mean, most people that came to Favikin after that was done had seen that episode. Most people would have seen hundreds of dishes on Instagram. Most people would have heard me on some podcast or read an article, you know. So I felt towards the end of Favikin that, you know, a lot of what we do, what we did was no longer like giving an experience. It was confirming an experience that people already kind of half had. And I thought that that was a little bit sad in one way. I completely agree with like what Molina said in terms of authenticity, because there are a few things that you can't destroy, you can't destroy the human presence by sharing a photo of it, for example. It's a different thing to meet a person in real life. And I think that experiential restaurants from now on into the future are going to have to look much more into these things that can't be duplicated, things that can't be transferred to another location in the world, things that are culturally tied to where they're located, and then also like the human side the actual like human person-to-person -person interaction, which can't be duplicated. Um, so I think that this sort of, the concept of the fine dining restaurant, the way we have seen it is going, you know, it's being evolutionized into something else. Like, I mean, this idea that you could have a, the creative person designing a fine dining menu and then a team executing it, and that sort of is enough. It's no longer enough because if that team can, execute that menu that the creative person figure out 
a lot of other teams in the whole world can do that. And this, I think, is something that we've seen throughout my career, that uh, restaurants, especially in the, in the very high end where there are more resources to do what you feel like in a way, they're looking more and more like each other. Like the format of the dining experience is beginning to be very similar. You know, one hand, there are many great dining experiences out there, but I think that that part of the evolution is a little bit sad because it's nicer with more diversity. It's much nicer than when you go to a country that's not your own to discover something that you couldn't get at home. So authenticity, for sure. We're going to jump to questions from the audience for the last few minutes that we have you both. I wanted to start with a question that uh, Sujin is asking, which is, what is your experience in making business decisions that bring profit and social equity together and where, where they're usually in conflict with one another? Magnus, you talked a little bit about Lagom in your book, and I would love for you to maybe talk about that concept because I think it really ties together this question about profit and social equity in a way that would be really interesting for our audience. So Lagom is a Swedish word that has no translation in any other language and the best way you can describe it in English it's that it means just enough but it's not just enough with a negative or positive connotation it's entirely neutral it just means like perfect equilibrium but not positive nor negative so it's a very very particular sort of uh, word and it really it's like part of being Swedish it's really deeply ingrained in the idea of being a Swede. Um, and it's something that a lot of people use in their everyday thinking and language. <clears throat> and for me, it's like I fairly quickly re- realized after having some initial success with Fabriken that. Um, uh, some initial success with Fabriken, I realized that I'm not particularly interested in developing multiple business or creating a very big organization. Uh, and part of that was that I realized that even though I do like to have resources. I mean, I enjoy the freedom that some money can give you in terms of creativity and stuff like that. But I also very quickly realized that I'm not interested in becoming wealthy. Like I'm just not. And a lot of people find this very, very odd. But that's just the way that I function. That doesn't mean that you sort of can take a stand back and say, I'm not going to run a profitable business because you still have to run a profitable business. But the difference is that either you run a business to run a business and develop that, or you run a business as a tool for you to do what you want in other parts. For me, you know, creatively, for you talking now, for example, about social equity, like taking that step back and saying that I want just enough for myself, but then I want to do other good things with the rest of it that I can generate. I think that's sort of a one way of looking at it. Melena, I think this is a great question for you. It comes from Courtney. Courtney's asking, what trends are you seeing or expect to see between farmers and restaurants given all of the impacts of COVID and what can we do to best support each other in this time? Well, I think that's a very complex uh, kind of answer because there are different kinds of farmers. Uh, I, I mean, if I talk about Peru, uh, the amount of experiences, there are so many cases in, and it also has to do with uh, many regions that we have in Peru that are producing different stuff. I can see there's definitely more connection uh, between what is going on in the fields and, and what goes on in a restaurant. Uh, having said that, it's still a difficult thing to do and, and to pursue, you know, as, as one of the objectives of your business. If we are talking about a profitable business, it would be easier 
to just rely on distributors and, and big suppliers and not care so much about what's going on outside. But if you are thinking about making it a sustainable kind of business or restaurant, then you should know more. And, and that's going to the origin of things, of products, and that's knowing more about the seasonality of every crop in different regions. And that's just knowing more. You need a big team and it's not something that any restaurant can afford. And, and that's understandable. So there are many nuances to the, the whole responsibility and sustainability thing. It would be not very responsible to not look into the complexity of things and just throw it in to every restaurant, um, at least in Peru, because it's a very difficult task to do so. And so what we do is we, we work so that, and we produce so that we can make matter uh, live and, and do projects and, and connect with people. And that's it. Uh, we are not thinking wealthy either. We're thinking sustainable in, in the fact of sustainability of connections. And I think that's so important as well, like this idea that, I mean, you can use resources and that's like where very ambitious and more expensive restaurants have a larger opportunity than many other places in hospitality to divert resources to, think, to things that we think are worthwhile, things that are interesting or worth preserving, worth supporting. Mm-hmm. We are running out of time and there are a ton of really great questions. I'm just going to ask one last very practical question. Magnus, you have four kids. Milena, you have nieces and nephews who are older. The question that came in from Katie was, how can we raise our kiddos to be more conscious of food and food waste? Do you guys have any tricks or tips? Well, I would say for, for them to be more conscious, we have to be the conscious adults there and we have to be the role models there. If we eat healthy and we make the right decisions about what, uh, where we source our, our products from, then they will learn. It would be just a fluid thing. I think that's the main thing. Everything starts at home. I have a 10-month-old baby and, and I haven't probably reached the part where <laughs> she can see me as a role model and, and imitate whatever I do. But I think that's, that's like the beginning of everything. No, I, I agree with that. I, and I do think, though, that like our generation and a couple of generations before are really the people who made the, the uh, most um, damage to our planet and food system. I mean, if you look at the development of consciousness just over the last 10 years, and we can sort of imagine that that trajectory is going to continue. I think it's also safe to deduce that our kids are going to be vastly more well-informed than we are. To me, that feels um, very sort of hopeful (laughs) on that front. I want to thank you both and do just a last couple bit of housekeeping. Magnus's new book, Favikan 4,015 Days Beginning to End, is available on Fadon, and they're offering a 20% off discount with the code IDEO20. It's an amazing book, y'all. I have it here. It's in the other room. I would go get it, but there might be another kid running into the room, so I'm just going to stay where I am. Um, really, you should check it out. For the foodie lovers in your life, amazing, amazing book and amazing stories and essays from Magnus and his team. If you get a chance to get down to Peru to see Malena and Mater and get a chance to go to Cusco and visit Miel or Central in Lima, please, please do. They do wonderful, amazing things. I've been very fortunate to eat at Central and it is a mind-blowing experience, even though you may know what's coming. So I wanted to thank you all so much for joining us, Malena, Magnus, and child's name, Magnus? Folke. 
That's a difficult one in English. Trevinka, hey though. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope you all have a wonderful day and a great holiday and restful, uh, rejuvenating holiday season. So thanks everyone for joining us, Milena, Magnus. Thank you so much. We really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I need to figure out what Magnus said in Swedish there to calm his son down at the end. That was some Jedi-level parenting skills. If you're interested in joining us for future conversations like this, please visit ideo.com/food and sign up to receive updates from our food team and invitations to events like this. And as always, thanks for listening. If you learned something and enjoyed this, please send it to a friend. And you can really help by subscribing on Spotify and leaving a perfect rating and review in iTunes. You know the algorithms love that. Thanks to Kate Greenberg, Ellie Levine at Fadon, Andrea Salas from Central, Alex Galifant, Dory Ellis, Annie Svigals, Travis Wong, and Alexis Vogel from IDEO for help putting Food by Design live together. Evan Roberts edited this episode. From everyone at IDEO, we wish you a wonderful and safe Happy New Year.